everyone. Welcome back to the Leech Podcast, the most visceral podcast. I am your host, Evan Cates, and I am joined by two Leechy gentlemen, Aaron Jones, Banks Clark. Hey, guys. How you doing? Leech Podcast, as always, is a show about movies that suck the life out of you, but they also stick with you, and they may even be good for you, like a leech. Three of us are three bleeding hearts who love films, and we all know that blood attracts leeches. We <laughs> all used to teach together, and now we leech together. So hmm. welcome back, everybody. We have a great episode today about the film Apocalypse Now, which we will get into shortly. But before we do that, I just want to remind everybody that you can uh, be in contact with us on Twitter, at Leech Pondcast or on Instagram, The Leech Pondcast. Please send us your questions, your ideas, any ideas for new episodes, movies we should do. And after this episode, we would love to hear a recording from our listeners of your best impression of an Aaron Jones laugh. Ooh. Aaron, I think that was your cue to give uh, one of those laughs, but I'm, gonna, not... I'm just going to see what comes out in the episode. Uh, this okay. laugh, it's an uncontrollable. <laughs> force it, Aaron. It's true. Uh, it's, it's a great an point. uncontrollable creature sorry. within me. Yeah. <laughs> sorry. Sorry. Good point. Uh, so uh, careful listeners will hear an Aaron Jones laugh, I'm sure, at some point, and are welcome to record themselves doing their best impression. Please, please share those with us. Mm, mm, mm. Also still looking for your recommendations for lychee cocktails. We've got some... Uh, good ideas coming in. We want to get more and more because we want to try more and more. That's mm -hmm. right. Indeed. Indeed. So uh, let's get to it. Uh, we're going to start with Leech Anatomy. Um, mm. And so let, let's just go with this. Leech camera action. Mm. This is Aaron reporting in from the field on Leech Anatomy. One question I ask myself is, what would a world without leeches be like? A sad world. So how mm. is it that we get more leeches? Which is why leech reproduction is the topic of today. The information I'm presenting comes from the Mountain Lake Biological Station, University of Virginia. Their information on the freshwater leech. I'm reading here, it says leeches reproduce in the spring. This episode being recorded in May, this seems appropriate. Leeches are hermaphrodites, I read mm. here. And reproduce through reciprocal fertilization. Let me see that one more time. Reciprocal <laughs> fertilization, in which, quote, both leeches become impregnated at the same time. Wow. Ooh. The mother leech, I'm quoting, forms a tough gelatinous cocoon around the egg mass and attaches it to a hard object or buries it in the mud, end quote. No, wait, one last thing. The cocoon contains all the nutrients the young leeches need to survive. The young emerge several weeks later. Good Lord. So here you wow. have, here, folks, uh, hermaphroditic creatures, reciprocal fertilization, strange egg cocoons that, like a chicken's egg, contain all the young chicks need to survive. <laughs> and they're born in the mud to fill the world with their goodness forever after. That's all from me. That was beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. And that has been Leech Anatomy 101. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so let's dive into this episode of uh, Apocalypse Now. We're calling it Apocalypse Now. 
Whoop. Thanks. What happened in this movie? So before we get started with this uh, uh, quick spoiler warning about to go into the plot, if you haven't seen the movie, it is well worth your time. For the diehard fans out there, you can do Apocalypse Now Redux. And I don't even know that movie is exceptionally long. Apocalypse Now is already like three hours plus. I think the Redux version is like five. <laughs> um, it's also uh, just general content warning as well. This is a movie that definitely deals with uh, a lot of uh, violence. It's also a lot of adult themes. It deals with a lot of like PTSD and mental health issues. So just want to make sure we're putting that out there since this is probably an episode we're going to be talking about some of that because it really uh, looks at it in uh, with a lot of depth for sure. Let's go up. Let's start going up this river, shall we? Uh, so this is a movie that starts with us meeting so Captain Benjamin Willard, played by Martin Sheen, and we meet him in his hotel room. Not on the battlefield, but clearly still bearing the memories of the battlefield. Still very much carrying the pain, the memory, the post-traumatic stress. So we have this splicing of battle imagery with the doors, with the fan, with helicopter blades. And it's this powerful scene where he's clearly in pain, clearly suffering. And yet he cannot wait to get back to the fight. He gets his wish. He gets an assignment to go and find this sort of very enigmatic, very um, elusive character named Kurtz, Colonel Walter E. Kurtz, who is this apparently AWOL officer who has since collected this following of people who are sort of worshiping him, almost like a cult up in Cambodia. So past even the borders of Vietnam. And so Willard needs to, is supposed to go upstream in a boat, find him, and eliminate him. And he takes the offer. And so this is a story of him sort of going upriver, learning more and more about Kurtz as he gets more mail, and then having these strange encounters, <laughs> including an encounter with a certain um, Lieutenant Colonel Bill Kilgore, played by Robert Duvall, who is this cowboy who you know takes helicopters into battle with surfboards, playing Ride of the Valkyries and Bogner. Uh, you know, they go to bridges, they meet uh, different characters uh, as they move upstream. And as they do, so the movie starts to almost unravel in terms of its plot. The sense of the mission, the sense of assignment starts to go away. And you're just sort of left more confused about the purpose of the war and to the point where Kurtz is finally shown to us and where it finally reaches this destination. You still don't ever get to meet Kurtz. He stays in the shadows. He's this very elusive character. And Martin Sheen is not a soldier anymore in a certain sense. He's just at his wit's end. And the whole purpose of sort of military, sort of this whole license of a military movie is kind of gone. And you're wondering what, what happened to the plot? <laughs> That's what I'm wondering by the end of this. And the movie ends in this profound climax as there's a ceremony where a water buffalo is sacrificed just as Willard takes with the sort of the same machete, goes and kills Kurtz. And there the movie ends. And you're sort of left with all of these pieces that are just sort of disjointed, but also tell a story that is weirdly relatable, at mm, least for me. Mm -hmm. That's Apocalypse Now, or Apocalypse Now. Let's talk about some Apocalypse themes. Yeah, it is a very strange movie. We'll try to unpack a lot of those scenes and characters. So, Banks, since you've just walked us through what happened in the film, I wonder if you could start us off with mm. a theme that is leechy. 
in this movie for you? So in the end, for this is a movie that I, it's a, it's a story about a journey for me. And so like journeying, but it's a very interesting kind of journey because this isn't a journey so much to a destination as it's a journey unto an unraveling for me. The, I have no idea where this story even ends. It just ends. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, as, you know, I think I was alluding when I was describing the plot, you have a real sense of purpose at the start of this movie. We're going on a mission, right? There's a sense of organization and it's, you, you see the horrors of war and you see these uh, things that are very difficult to watch, but it's like, okay, there's sort of this military purpose, perhaps even a sense of, misled heroism at times but also this genuine feeling of this is why we're doing it but as the movie goes on that just starts to not make sense it just starts to be about just the inhumanity and the oddity and the arbitrariness of violence mm-hmm. and in the end th- these end scenes that that those all those initial narratives of purpose and structure are more or less gone and so yes there's this journey into you know, of sort of this in, into the darkness of Cambodia, into the darkness of war, but also just into the darkness of a very troubled mind of uh, what might be called trauma and into a deeply hurt psychology. Mm. And I think that that journey element, if I have to find a theme that is powerful, that's what I look to. Mm. Yeah. And I think to build off that a little bit, and maybe, you know, for me, this theme is about being trapped. That's the one that comes out to me. And I think part of, I wonder if part of the deterioration in the journey has to do with the various kinds of traps people find themselves in. I think about the characters on the boat um, Hmm. with Willard and Chef and Clean. And over the course of this journey, each of them begins to lose track of reality, begins to lose track of what is okay, even their moral compass in, in different ways for each man. And there's something I think about the boat and being confined in that space, surrounded, of course, by war, but being in that boat somehow amplifies uh, the chaos. And mm. then I think about Willard ending up in the temple with Kurtz. And again, he's enigmatic. Like you said, he, Kurtz, he says some things, they don't seem to make sense. He has some books are lying around. It's very difficult to understand what it all means. And yet he, uh, Willard is imprisoned there question mark. Mm. And then he leaves, but comes back and murders Kurtz. And, and then that just kind of brings me even back to the beginning of the film where Willard himself is in this apartment. And we'll talk about this in a little bit more detail in a minute, but I think he's in there and he's, he's drunk He's becomes uh, violent, causes himself harm, um, and he himself seems to be trapped within his own mind, within his own memories. It's hmm. too simplistic to say being trapped is what causes this descent into chaos and madness. But I do think these traps, the film is playing with those again and again and again. Yeah, I'm interested in this idea of this being a journey Hmm. us watching a journey toward trauma. Like there's been a lot of the, hmm. like we step into the story where a lot of that has already taken place. We're midway through in media race through a process of like an, an entirely trauma filled war and narrative, but like we're journeying toward the heart of trauma, toward the heart of darkness, so to speak. 
and where there's like this, the like the pulsing heart of like where does this where does this journey lead? This place of like ceremonial destruction, and I'm intrigued by that. And I think for me, like I'm interested in the certain forms of escape. That's my theme: is that these certain forms of escape that people try to enact as they find themselves pulled deeper and deeper toward that core. And I'm really interested in the scene where <laughs> not only do people seek escape, but those, the powers that be try and engineer forms of escape and escapism by providing entertainments for the boys. And when the ship that Willard is on stops at the fueling station where the playboy playmates have been invited and we see the helicopter descend with the playboy bunny insignia on the side and the the women are dancing and oh it's like the men are going wild and for me like as i watch the men storm the stage there's this wild urgency and it, uh, that scene like it, i it holds on to me because literally there there one of the soldiers at the end of the scene is desperately clinging to the helicopter as the women are whisked away from these maddened soldiers Someone is just clinging mm-hmm. to the helicopter, so desperate for whatever it is these women represent, which is some escape from this descent, this ever gravitating pull toward the traumatic core of the film and the experience that they're trapped in. It's trap and attempted escape. Oof. Powerful. It's a powerful scene. And, and maybe that's a good segue into our leechiest scenes. So I'll start us off with the opening scene, which Banks described well in the introduction. I think this scene sticks with me because of the vulnerability that I see in Willard. He, he seems broken from the minute you see him. Um, he's, he's drinking. You know that he's a soldier. You can only, like, it is in media rest, so you can only imagine what he's been through. And then... Alongside that, Francis Ford Coppola is playing the doors and there's the <laughs> whirring of the, of the fan like a helicopter whirring. And mm-hmm. so visually and uh, in audio, they're, they're taking you back into the war, but he's in this apartment or he's in this, this room. Mm-hmm. So you see that the war hasn't left him. He's, he's still very much living it. And then you see the what comes from that, which is he keeps drinking. He starts dancing around and he punches a mirror and his hand becomes bloody. And by the end of the scene, he's basically naked on the floor, blood all over himself and eventually passed out. And this scene just sticks with me for, I mean, what a strange way to start a movie, right? Mm -hmm. It starts with trauma and, and it's going to go even further into that. But that that scene, I just I just can't get it out of my head. It's almost like there's this <laughs> it, to get to the leechiest part. It's almost like there's this trauma, and the journey is almost to root out the heart of it. Mm-hmm. And well, mm-hmm. discussions can be had if that's what the movie and uh, achieves in the end. But there is that feeling for sure. Mm. I think this kind of leads me toward my leechiest scene, which is sort of seeing if this film is partly a, a journey of deterioration and a sen- and an increasing sense of confinement that are, 
the soldiers have in this experience is they what sorts of explosive and deadly consequences mm. can that have? And I, for me, this the Lichia scene is the one where Willard is on the boat with his escort and Chief Phillips, who pilots the boat, who's really committed to military protocol. They see a civilian ship, just a little little boat of Vietnamese who are carrying what it looks like is supplies for the market, but they have to inspect the boat according to policy, even though Willard says, please don't, don't do this. But oh, it's pilot military, it's their duty to inspect the boat. And in this moment, your stomach, <laughs> you have a sinking feeling like this movie is so claustrophobic. All of the, this energy here is, is negative, dark energy, and it's going to explode and be unleashed somewhere. Mm. And who's it going to be unleashed upon? And you, you have to watch as this moment intensifies to the point where one of the soldiers clean snaps and guns down everyone on the boat in cold blood just goes totally mad totally insane it just shoots down every person on the boat and then as if that wasn't enough the scene gets worse where the ones the one wounded survivor kind of hurries to the back of the boat to protect something and you find out it's just a puppy like she who herself is innocent tries in her dying breath to, to save that which is helpless and innocent. And when the soldiers, horrified by what they've done, attempt to think about resuscitating her, getting her medical care, Willard has no time for it. He just shoots her point blank. The lone survivor just shoots her down. They take the puppy and they go. And all they can do after that moment is just sort of shrug it off and keep going. Like keep following mm. the pulse of the heart, the gravi- the gravitational pull, the madness of that moment, the horror of that violence, the explosive nature of pent up trauma. That scene won't leave me. That scene will trouble me for a long time. It's a really hard scene. One of the interesting things is that's the only scene where Willard ever fires his gun. Wow. It's the only time in the whole movie. An interesting thing is uh, this my Lichia scene actually comes right after Aaron's. You know, one of the interesting things uh, is that this for a long while, I would always say Apocalypse Now was my favorite movie. And this is when I was you know, end of high school, sort of college, when I really like fancied myself to be like a really smart person with movies. Like that, that's mm-hmm. what I wanted to tell everyone was my favorite movie. So it like felt like it. And like, I didn't know anything. Like probably like if I was honest, I would have said like Star Wars or something. Mm-hmm, but, mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. And I watch it now and, and <laughs> I say, I don't know what the heck I was talking about. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, like I had no idea what this movie was. Or I couldn't trace any of these themes. But for the, there might be one exception for me. And that's uh, the scene of the Dolong Bridge. And it stuck with me then. And still today, if I ever think about this movie, it's the images of this scene that stick with me. And this is the scene where they, uh, the boat is uh, riding through the, like up to this bridge at night. And the bridge is not a bridge. This is supposedly like the last holdout of U.S. troops in Vietnam. And uh, all that's left of the bridge is like this string of Christmas lights. And there are flares firing overhead and tracers and flashes of light and almost like fireworks. 
you know, men are like crawling the river trying to get on them. And so, you know, Willard and uh, uh, Lance end up getting out of the boat to try and find the commanding officer to get fuel. And Lance, who is dropped acid, just to make it more surreal, you know, puts a puppy, <laughs> puts this puppy from Aaron's in his jacket and is walking around with a puppy while there are soldiers mm. around crying. You can hear, you know, cries of pain in the distance. Men are shooting at, you can't really tell. They might be shooting at nothing. Are they shooting against their own demons? You don't even know. Mm. And it's just this surreal scene that all of a sudden nothing is making sense right after, I mean, like everything to this point has been, you know, a movie budget that's been through the roof to try and create this military epic. And Francis Coppola at this point says, no, we're, we're going for now meta like surrealist metaphors. I think it's just really powerful because it's unexpected. And for me, it's this hinge at which the movie sort of swings from a war movie into a movie that is unraveled. It's an unraveling of, a mental states, the unraveling of a lot of the plot that you were expecting. It's, it's a swing into what could be called madness, but it's also the imagery is just fascinating. And I just, I can't shake it off. Haven't been able to my whole life. Leach is seen. It is really memorable. And it, it, it feels like a carnival almost. And yeah, they play carnival music. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Very absurd scary in a way and also utterly pointless right i think they say that every day they take back the bridge or every day they're fighting over the same bit of territory yeah. and and nothing is ever gained nothing's really ever lost but they keep fighting and the band plays on so there's some characters we've named so far and i wonder if we could really dig into these leechy these leechy figures aaron do you do you have one in mind yeah, let me jump in. I think my my character kind of follows. I mean, this scene that the Banks just talked about is this scene of, of course, kind of maximum turbulence. And I think emotionally, the film is is pretty turbulent. A lot of points in the film, I'm not sure what I'm supposed to feel. But there's this one moment of clarity for me that, with one specific character, that kind of gives me an anchor of pathos that I don't know, just ma makes this character really leechy for me. And it's the character is clean hmm. Tyrone Miller. That's played by young Lawrence Fishburne. The one who I, in the scene that I described, he guns down the innocent people who are on the riverboat. And, but at the moment it's the, the scene of his death that really, that really makes his character stick with me because he's he's one of the youngest, most boyish looking characters in in the movie and on the boat, and and to watch him become this enact these kind of monstrous forms of violence, and then the the way that they do his death is so troubling, so troubling. He receives a a voice recording, receives a voice recording from his mother who is reaching out and trying to find some way to reach him and talk to him and, and wish him well and tell him to be safe. And it's this moment of, of humanity and sanity and, and home. And it's at that moment, as that recording is being explored that the boat is ambushed clean attempts to like shoot back at these, at whoever's ambushing them in the woods. And he dies as the recording plays on. 
and tells him to stay safe and to stay out of the way of the bullets. And for me, like, I never, I never in the film care about Willard that much because Willard, I never get to know Mm. about his family or his people or a home that's waiting for him. But because Clean has a home, he has love waiting for him and we see it taken away. That he sticks with me. That's that's like that pain, that pathos is Leechy for me. Yeah, he's he's a such a memorable character, especially as someone like you said who's so young and sort of at the bottom of the military hierarchy. For me, the Leechy character is perhaps an obvious choice. It's Kilgore, the Robert Duvall character, who's higher up on the on the hierarchy. Very memorable character has probably most famous line in the film love the smell of napalm in the morning oh yeah (laughs) wow (laughs) couldn't not drop that quote and this is probably not a new idea but i think what sticks with me about him is this combination of being quintessentially american right and that oh yeah it's this he uses the technological superiority the the military tactical superiority he uses a classic of Western music as part of his attack. This is Western civilization in the body of Kilgore attacking this Vietnamese beach. And all he really wants to do is surf. <laughs> and that's all he's talking about the whole time. <laughs> it's funny and yet absurd and they are going to slaughter the Vietnamese folks there. And I think that the juxtaposition of his power, his humor, but also the brutality, I think is uh, Coppola's way of highlighting. This is, this is America in this moment. Yes. They have all the wealth. Mm -hmm. Yes. They have the advantages. Yes. They're sort of fun and boyish and cowboy. Like he's a cowboy, right? Oh Yeah. And this is sort of a Western frontier and they're subduing the lands of these native peoples, right? But it's utterly banal. He just wants to surf. And and there's there's something so just tragic and revelatory about it. You know, I think about this film called Apocalypse Now, Apocalypse in the sense of revelation. There there is something revealed about America in the body of Kilgore. Mm-hmm. But the only other thing I would say is that his men, the white guys mostly, but his men love him. And he builds Uh a kind of community around his body, right? Remember the scene before they ambush the beach, they're all sitting around the fire and they're like draped around him. And so there is a a community that he offers in this cowboy, fun, absurdist mystique that is also premised on violence and destruction of Vietnamese bodies. I, I just can't get that that figure out of my mind oh and there's such a sense that he's like invincible too oh yeah <laughs> as, as as shells go off around him and as bullets fly he stands proudly erect and he's not uh, worried fearless. he's not worried yeah. nothing can touch him he just wants he just wants to surf and fly his helicopter and play <laughs> his wagner yeah i think that uh my choice for Lichia's character is, um, I think, also perhaps an easy one. I think that, in my opinion, the whole movie is kind of built around making this person 
stick with you, make you interested in them. And the movie never gives you an answer. And that's the person of Kurtz. I think that uh, the movie introduces Kurtz as an enigma and up to the last line where Marlon Brando utters the horror, the horror, you really don't get to know him. He speaks in cryptic phrases and half spone poems. And he also has built this community around him of uh, almost something like a cult of people who worship him. And you don't ever get to know him really. He has some things to say that are very lucid and seem insightful. And then other things that he says make him sound like a sociopath. And then he says, and he's this figure that you seek out the entire film and you cannot wait to know him. You've been sitting here for three hours. Um, like I want to be cursed. And then you meet him, but you never get to see him. Half the shots, the man is entirely in shadow. It's like you're not allowed to even see him. You're not allowed to hear his full thoughts. And the mystique that's built around him makes him all the more appealing, which is, I think, the what they're trying to inspire and show from Willard's point of view. As he reads more of these letters, he wants to get to know him more and more and is drawn to him more and more. And so for me, um, I, I think Kurtz is the leechiest. Something about something about Kurtz, he is sort of the he is the he's the full violence of the Vietnam War detached from the propaganda machine that that wants to justify it and to make it have a moral heart. I'm interested in this mm. he gives this long monologue, this speech. At the end of the speech, he says, uh you have to have men who are moral and at the same time who are able to utilize their primordial instinct to kill without feeling, without passion, without judgment, without judgment, because it's judgment that defeats us. And so I think that that Curtis is, he is super enigmatic and he's, and he's deeply symbolic because he, he detaches from the hierarchy and kind of takes Hmm. away the relationship to politics and is just interested in like the pure meaning of violence. Yeah. Well, on that note, I think we should take a commercial break. (laughs) (laughs) So please stick with us for our next segment of Leech on a Beach. (laughs) Brought to you by Banks. Well, this Leech on a Beach scene is brought to you by the one, the only, Lieutenant Colonel Bill Kilgore and (laughs) his need to surf literally on the beach. Ah. I don't know what it says about me and how heartless I can be at times that I find this scene to be utterly hilarious at times. I just think it's, you know, Mm. uh, (laughs) Robert Duvall just commits 100% to this character and delivers. And I just think it's, I mean, he's, they're flying in, you know, they're playing music and they have surfboards where machine guns could be They're like coming out. And I just think that it's awful and heartless. And yet 
I think it says something that it's also just a genuinely funny scene. And I don't know what that says about American views of war, about American senses of humor, but geez, I can't help but laugh at it. I mean, they have bullets flying and then like Kilgore's like, if I say it's safe to surf on this beach, Captain, then it's safe to surf on the beach. And then a napalm strike just like clears out the whole thing. And so, I don't know, leech on a beach. It's absurd. It's so absurd. And uh, yeah, it's uh, surfing in the middle of a war film. I mean, who else would think that that would make a great idea? <laughs> right? Yeah. So leave it to Francis Coppola, right? It is a stunning scene in so many ways. All right. Well, that's been our segment of Leech on a Beach. Thank you, thanks. Now back to our regularly scheduled program. All right. Welcome back from Leech on a Beach. <laughs> we are now going to talk about the medicinal qualities of this film, the Haruto therapy. Mm-hmm. Ways in which this film is sticking with us in a good way. Thanks. I think like a real, there, there's a there is a positive read that you can give to this mm. film. You know, I think you know Evan, your favorite scene, right? Or not favorites, in your legious scene of meeting this deeply troubled man who is already broken. You know, one read on on this is this is a you could look at this movie as a journey to try and remove the horror, the horror that is at his own heart. Mm-hmm. Right. And uh, you could read mm. this entire movie in, in a psychological metaphor for like these, perhaps uh, it's almost like uh, different ways of coping or something, or all these different scenes and characters and mechanisms that he's used. And in the end, getting to Kurtz is like getting to, you know, the heart of his pain and much like, you know, the, a, a devil or a demon in medieval iconography, you don't ever get to see it. Um, in medieval iconography, often the the devil was never actually portrayed. It was just negative space. It was just a blank part. And in some ways, that's how a Coppola portrays Kurt. Literally, with the lighting, you don't ever get to see him. And then maybe this is a attempt of trying to root out, search out, shine a light on the thing that troubles us most. And it's in that sense, uh, maybe some healing can be found in trying to seek that out. Mm. As I think about this film, it's therapeutic qualities. I think for me, there are uh, three and I will say them briefly. The first is that I think for me, this film cultivates empathy. I live in a country and community. I live, uh, one block or two blocks away from a veteran's hospital where people, a lot of people are processing either long-term health consequences from, from this war or traumas from this war. One of my dearest college professor friends, her husband died early of cancer because of his exposure to napalm and chemicals used in Vietnam warfare. And so there's a way in which that experience is so far from my experience. And this film in a way helps me gives me some empathy, I think, for the trauma that I see in it. I think this film also, a a Haruto therapy quality of it is it sort of forces us to ask questions about the righteousness of war and any kind of moral heart to war and conflict of this kind. And lastly, I, I 
I also think uh, beyond even asking us questions, I think that this film provides us a, a much needed condemnation, a condemnation that is cathartic of for the viewer about the kinds of thing, horrors that were perpetrated in the war. And to see that condemnation so vividly portrayed in the film is, that's, I think that's therapeutic in a way. Yeah, that's great. I Just to what you said about being by the VA hospital, Aaron, reminded me actually of, I did a chaplain residency for a summer at that hospital. Through meeting with veterans from Vietnam and reading a book about, about the experiences of Vietnam veterans and PTSD and, the, and their lives after the war, I, I learned about this idea of the berserk state. And the book that we read was called Achilles in Vietnam. It's by Jonathan Shays. It's a very powerful book, strongly recommend it. And it's interesting to think about that book in light of this film mm. in that it's using a different epic, right? The epic of with Achilles and his story of experiencing war, experiencing the chaos of it. And the one of the really important points of that book is that when this hero goes through this chaotic experience of war, and watches maybe a righteous friend die mm. or just the randomness and the arbitrariness of the war, it destroys their entire moral compass. Things that they thought were just obviously right suddenly seem wrong. And folks who seem wrong live. The, everything gets turned upside down. Mm. And out of that loss of a moral compass or out of a loss of a moral universe, it becomes possible for that hero or that person to then in another instance of war to become triggered. And this leads to what Shays describes as the berserk state um, where they, they sort of lose all moorings to reality, to morality, maybe to, to God or a higher power and horrible atrocities are committed. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think this film visually sonically narratively captures the the descent into the berserk state mm -hmm. through various stages of the moral universe of these characters being destroyed that what they narrated is the moral life mm. no longer makes sense they don't have a, a new story to tell and instead they kind of can't help but go berserk and i think that i think this film like gives me images for the things I read to go along with the stories that I was told when I was in that experience. Wow. Yes. That's also the story of the making of the film itself in so many ways. Hmm. In order to tell a story that can go into that, geez, Francis Coppola just about drove himself mad and broke making this hmm. film. They've shot so, I don't even know how much, like film they went through in the shooting, but way more than could ever be put into a movie so much. So that it took like, I don't know how long, like years to even edit it. You know, it's almost as if you had these fragmented stories that they didn't even know how to put together. And what we got was a movie that shouldn't have worked, but it ends up telling a story that we can oddly connect with. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, that's right. So maybe to build on that, how would we rate this movie? One to four leeches. Does anybody have a strong, strong feeling on a rating? I let me see here. So I think Banks is the person who's seen this movie the most. Probably true. The first time I saw it, I 
I saw it. Uh, I've only seen it twice. We rewatched it recently, but the first time I saw it was a couple years ago when a local theater, the Carolina Theater, played it on the big screen. And I saw it. Yeah, big shout out, the Carolina Theater of Durham. We I saw it on the big screen with a friend, and in that context, when the when the film was enormous, I found it really engrossing. And when the film was on a small screen, the last thirty to forty five minutes, I could hardly stay awake through. Honestly, it it wow, didn't. You don't have to. You don't have to make fun of my TV like that. <laughs> I didn't say. I didn't say it was your TV. <laughs> the screen was painfully small. I've gotten a bigger TV since then, so it's okay. Difficult to see images at all. Yes. <laughs> no, that's not the point. That's not the point. <laughs> My point is that it didn't. It didn't grip me. I started to. I started to doze off. It, the film for me started to become incoherent. The leech fell off, huh? The leech released. And didn't like hold on the whole time. <laughs> and so for me, I'm, I think I would have started out this conversation maybe as a single leech. I'm going to go up to two leeches because of the ways that we've discussed it together. I'm, I'm motivated. Okay. I think this film does stick with me, but it doesn't hold on to me. It doesn't grip me the way that I want a leechy film to grip. Mm, mm, come on, leech. Grip. That's what I got. Two leeches. <laughs> Grip like your life depends on it. <laughs> it does. I think when I'm thinking about a uh, number of leeches for this film, you know, I've, I've definitely seen it once or twice. Uh, when I was younger, I would have said four and I'll fight anybody who disagrees with me. Mm, mm. Uh, other times, like I probably would have said that was just silly. I don't know. I would give it like one or two. But seeing it again, watching it with fresh eyes and a new appreciation. I think that there are some scenes that really are pretty remarkable. And I think that this movie does have a lot to offer. I'm going to give it three leeches. Mm, mm -hmm, mm. Okay. Three. Three. Aaron, you were at two. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think I'm, I think I'm going to go two as well. Mm. I think for a while I was at one, but <laughs> I, that was, I think that was too harsh. There are, like you said, Banks, so many scenes that are, memorable indelible so many quotes that are just in our cultural lexicon yeah and i but i think that's also part of why for me the film i feel a distance from it i think it's in part because so much of the literature that i've read about the vietnam war and so many of the movies i've watched that are about war or are set in war times i think we're profoundly shaped by this movie mm-hmm mm-hmm so it's hard to imagine a war film after Apocalypse Now not um, echoing it or nodding at it in some way. And I think the sort of general gist of this movie, which is like this war this was absurd. It was terrible. It was morally bankrupt on the American part, especially. Mm. It descended into madness and chaos. All those things we've talked about, I think that's just like, that's how I learned about the Vietnam War. Yeah. And so I think when it came out, it was probably so subversive and staggering and would really hit you in a, in a way that maybe because of its success, it didn't quite hit me the same way when I watched mm -hmm. it for the first time in 2021. Right. So that's, that's not right. the film's fault. 
that's not the film's fault. It's in a way it's there. It's a victim of mm. its own success. But for me personally, as I watched it, I felt that distance. So I, I'm at two leeches. Yeah. I love looking at it through that historical lens. And I'm so curious to, I love to hear from listeners too, who've, who've seen the film respond to this question. Do we feel like the film kind of like holds together or whether it's a kind of a series of pieces that by the end are not more than the sum of their parts in some way. That's a, that's my concern about it as a piece of art, independent of this kind of, this deeply important history that we're referring to as a piece of art, like does it hang and hold together? And I'm, I'm not sure. I'm still figuring out the answer to that question because it feels like fragments of this movie blow my mind but does the movie itself stick with me leech on me in a way that i want i'm not sure it's hard to follow the the story by the end it, people i think argue still about like the nature of this ending mm-hmm. because it's not an ending mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> it, it just ends <laughs> and there's a difference <laughs> <laughs> yeah well i i think for me some of it connects it back to kurtz it's i think a lot of this movie hinges on whether you think well, how you interpret kurtz i think says a lot about where you think the film ends up mm-hmm. um he is enigmatic but i kind of found myself by the end and again i've only seen it one time so i'm i probably should go back and watch it a few more times but i just kind of thought well i don't really get what he's about i like the juxtaposition of killing the was it the water buffalo mm-hmm, at the same mm-hmm. i mean that move i mean coppola does the same thing in the godfather you know this act of utter brutal violence coupled with a sort of religious rite uh, or ceremony mm-hmm. which i think is visually and intellectually interesting and yet i didn't i still don't know if i know what was being said with it mm-hmm. and so then the movie left me with this weird uns- I mean, which maybe is the point maybe that's mm. the point What's this metaphor for? Because <laughs> usually, I mean, a sacrifice is done to appease. I, I think there's probably two meanings of sacrifice, right? One is to create a scapegoat, which is to sort of take that which is uh, troubled or wrong in oneself or one's community and to map it onto the animal and kill the animal and therefore kill that thing that is wrong or troubled. Or a sacrifice is meant to appease something, to appease an angry God or to to please or feed some kind of hungry thing. And I'm for something something the something seems almost like this act is an act that Willard needs in some way. Is this about his own salvation? Is this about enacting something that will somehow cleanse him or take that which has been troubled and restore it by destroying kind of his shadow, which is Kurtz. I don't know. I'm speculating. And I think that's all that the movie lets me do is just speculate. That said, the modernists amongst us would say that's the fact that it invites such things is better than one that uh, just gives it to you outright. Mm. We shall debate and the debate shall continue. So please, viewers, we want to know what you think. Which is it? <laughs> is it worth all the extra effort to come up with the answer ourselves? Or should uh, should a good story actually uh, 
do a little bit more effort to help us along the way? It's a great question. If you would like to respond to that, please go on Twitter to at Leech Podcast and on Instagram, the Leech Podcast. Also, please do send us your audio recordings of your Aaron Jones laugh. Hey. There were plenty of lovely examples <laughs> in this episode to choose from. <laughs> And in honor of Apocalypse Now, we will be recording three different versions of this that we will release uh, every decade. <laughs> the Redux! The Redux! <laughs> that one is going to be five hours long. It is going to include so much laughter of Aaron Jones. It's going to be great. Apocalypse Now. It'll also include Evan Kate singing the opera part <laughs> to Flight of the Valkyries. Right, right, yes. Dragon fashion. So, yes, please uh, stay tuned, and we'd love your input. Thanks again for listening to the Leech Podcast, the most visceral podcast. This episode was hosted by Evan Kate, Banks Clark, and Aaron Jones. Editing by Evan Kate. Graphic design by Banks Clark. Original music by Justin Klump of Podcast Sound and Music. Production help by Lisa Gray of Soundmind Productions and equipment help and consultation from Topher Thomas.